tonight uh, we are, have a, a one-off message, and uh, I've called it King of Peace, and I felt like uh, God's led me to preach from Genesis chapter 14, which, if I'm honest with you, is out of my comfort zone. Uh, I'm very much a New Testament guy, uh, Greek is my thing, uh, I know absolutely no Hebrew, um, so you're like, oh no, that's not true, actually, I learned how to ask for somebody's telephone number in modern Hebrew, that's the only phrase that I know. It was before I met my wife, so don't worry about that. And it wasn't very successful either. So, um, No, Old Testament is uh, not usually where I would preach from, and so it's been quite a stretching experience. And um, this chapter as well, chapter 14 of Genesis, has just enough kind of boring bits that you would just totally gloss over it. At the start, there's, there's all of these you know, really difficult, long, hard-to-pronounce names, like we sometimes see in the Old Testament, uh, lots of these places, and you have to figure out, you know, what's actually going on. And then at the end of the chapter, we have this sort of unusual episode that's difficult to even understand or, or interpret with, without digging. And so to me, this, this chapter is, is like a potato, um, because there are lots of different ways that you can take a potato, right? You can cook it up in, in many different ways. I mean, you, you can fry it, you can put it in a bacon. I mean, I mean like gnocchi is made from potato, Right? I mean, I don't know who saw a potato and then imagined, like, pasta out of that thing. I don't understand. Uh, but the thing about a potato is that it's not doing itself any favors. I mean, you dig it out of the ground, and it's, like, dirty and lumpy. I mean, it's basically like a rock, but not as hard. Uh, so I don't know how, you know, someone turned that into all the delicious food that a potato can actually give. But this passage is a bit like that. It could go in many different directions. All of them are good, all of them are tasty, but it requires you to sort of dust off the dirt and figure out actually what is going on underneath the surface. But I believe that God has some encouraging things to say to us tonight through this chapter. And what we'll see at the end of the chapter is that it sort of culminates or or revolves around this peace offering. And it's not like any peace offering that you have experienced before or that you're aware of, because a peace offering is normally like an, an olive branch or like, you know, husbands, when you come home with flowers and chocolates, I've been there. It's like an ad- admission of, you know, I've done something wrong and I want to you know, extend the, the, the hand of peace. And uh, it's not like that. It's a different sort of peace offering altogether. So we'll get there. But the story of the chapter so far is that we're dealing with the story of Abraham, or at this point, his name is Abram. He hasn't been changed to Abraham yet. It's quite early on in his journey. So he hasn't uh, had Isaac, his son, yet. He hasn't even had Ishmael. He hasn't had his name changed. Uh, in fact, he and his nephew, Lot, who have been traveling together, who they've both grown to such a size in their estate and all their herds and all their um, flocks and uh, shepherds and, and all those sort of people, that the same area of land can't actually sustain them. And so they've had to part ways. And so we see in chapter 13 of Genesis, uh, in verse 9, it says, uh, Abraham, Abram's talking to, if I switch between Abram and Abraham, I apologize, but it's confusing even, even for me at this point. We know who we're talking about, right? Abram is, is Abraham. Chapter 9, Abram speaking to Lot. It says, it's not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Abram has this kind of perspective on this decision uh, which is, is really something quite special, something quite valuable, because he's learned the lessons so far in his journey of faith with God that he is totally at peace with whatever situation occurs because he knows that God's hand is going to be over it and in it. He's received a promise from God, and he trusts that promise 
more than he trusts the decision. It's a kind of attitude that we see echoed in the person of David as well. Who, David is known as a man after God's own heart, and he kind of has this sort of reckless abandon in the way that he acts or doesn't act, uh, in sort of totally leaving it up to God. Uh, he says uh, in, in one of his Psalms, he says, Vain is the salvation of man, but with God we shall do valiantly, for it is he who crushes our foes. I think that's Psalm 68. And he sort of, he won't do anything unless he knows God's in it. And the only things that he wants to be doing are things that God is in. And you know, I think that that's an incredibly powerful perspective for us to have as well. That once you've experienced God actually moving in some aspect of your life, or once you've actually seen God bless and multiply a, a particular thing, man, nothing else compares to that. Nothing else can get close. And it's almost like, you know, every other time of, of your life where God's not moving powerfully, I mean, it's just like half-time entertainment to, to when God is actually there and you see God's spirit moving and doing things. And so Abram has this perspective where he's like, you know, I don't care what it looks like. If God's there, I'm there. If God's doing it, I'm doing it. And so we've got this constant tension between these two characters, Lot and Abram, one of whom walks by sight and the other who walks by faith. And so Lot, we're told in the passage, he looks out and he sees that the, the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And so he sees that that side is incredibly lush, incredibly beautiful. God you know, waters it. And obviously it's going to be a popular area. And he's looking by sight and he's saying, that's the most attractive, so I'm going to take that. Whereas Abraham ends up left with the land of Canaan. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, to go back to the, the idea of a potato. If God were to offer you a potato, you would want to take the potato. If the world offered you, you know, let's say, a, a, a two-kilogram gold nugget, and God offered you a potato, would you be content to take the potato, knowing that God was in it? All right? Because, I, I mean, I'm going to say it. A potato from God is better than a gold nugget from the world. It's just the truth. And you know, you might come and you might say to someone like Abraham, you, you know what, you just need a basic lesson in economics, uh, because if you have a potato, you can maybe make some, some chips, you can maybe even plant that in the ground and, and try and grow, but if you've got a gold nugget, do you know how many potatoes you can buy? You could go out and buy a whole farm, field, land, plant potatoes to your heart's content, you can grow as many potatoes as you want. You can give them away for free, bless other people. You may, you may even start a business, start to make money. You can donate that money to an awesome cause. Like, how silly are you to take the potato? But the perspective is that actually, no. If God is in it, that's where we want to be. If God offers you a potato instead of the gold nuggets, then you should take the potato. And you know, God says uh, in the Psalms, uh, no, this one's from Psalm 68. I was wrong about the other one. Psalm 68, 9 says, Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. And, and this inheritance in the language of the, the people of the Old Testament uh, was usually twofold. It was firstly the physical land, because Abram was led to the physical land of, of Canaan. So the land itself represents the inheritance given by God to the people of Israel. And the other... Uh, implication of the word inheritance is actually the people of God, the people of Israel. And so the psalm says that, you know what, 
what you look out and see as dry and barren and dead and without potential, God can rain upon and turn it into something that you could not possibly imagine. And so whatever that potato might look like, it doesn't matter. You cannot compare it to you know, worldly economics to, to continue that analogy because somehow, somewhere in God's mind, there is blessing in that potato that you cannot possibly get in the gold nugget. I don't know what that looks like for your life. Maybe it's the, the idea you've got a medical practice and, and God's asking you to pack it up take it overseas, go somewhere where you're not going to be making anywhere near as much money, where you're not going to be living in a house that's nearly as nice, not going to have nearly the same acclaim or respect of the people around you, but you're able to bless people with the skills that God's given you. And maybe in that situation, in that potato-like situation, there, there is a blessing and a spiritual satisfaction and a deep contentment and a power that comes in your life that's never been there before. Whereas if you'd stayed and gone with a gold nugget and if you'd made as much money as you can and you'd donated to all these causes, God doesn't need your money. God's capable of doing the same thing with a potato. What he wants is, is your obedience and your faith. And I really do believe that we should be of the, the perspective where whatever God is in, if God has led clearly, it doesn't matter whether it looks like a potato, that's where we want to be. And not to oversimplify, right, because not every potato is from God and not every gold nugget is, the world, is from the world. But the attitude needs to be there, that we would choose wherever God is despite whatever it looks like. It's this mentality that whatever it is that God's doing, that's where we want to be investing in. And we don't want to do anything unless God is actually doing it. And we had a similar sort of emphasis from, from Pat this morning, and we, we're sort of looking at, you know, we're four years old as, as a church. Uh, where are we going? What are we doing? And the answer is whatever God is doing. You know, we're not here to play games with church. We're not here to, you know, do something that we think is going to be impressive to anyone. It's literally, what is God doing? That's where we want to be. That's what we want to be doing. But in order to get there, we've got to have that perspective, that same attitude as Abram did. Now, another interesting uh, thing from chapter 13. So Lot chooses this land, and he says uh, he chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east. And so they separated from each other. Now, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities uh, of the valley and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, if you've heard the, the name of Sodom used, you know that it's not a good place. It's full of you know, wicked people, according to how the Bible describes it, and eventually it leads to being destroyed. It's uh, totally destroyed. We have that scene where Lot and his family are escaping and his wife turns around and, and becomes a pillar of salt, looking at God raining down sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this, this town, Sodom, stands for every kind of sin and perversion and debauchery and licentiousness and wickedness, and to the point where we don't have to learn all those big words, we can just say Sodom, and we know exactly what is going on. But Sodom represents sin. It's a sinful place. It's a wicked place. And Lot here pitches his tent next to Sodom. Then we see later on in uh, chapter 14, the story here goes that there are all of these kings, and I mean, you can look at their names there and your pronunciation is going to be as good as mine. But basically, these kings want to throw off the oppression of this, this big king called uh, Ketalaoma, 
and they sort of band together and try and rebel, and then Ketelioma gets his own allies together and then comes back and crushes them, and he carries a bunch of them away. And some of the people that he carries away are from Sodom. And it says in uh, verse 11 of chapter 14, so the enemy, that is Ketelioma and all of his allies, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. What happened between chapters 13 and 14 when Lot pitched his tent near Sodom to now he's captured and he's taken away because he was living in Sodom? And the the reality is that if you are wanting to pitch your tent as close to sin as possible without being in sin, chances are the part inside of you that wants to be in sin is already winning. Does that make sense? If, if you're wanting to pursue some activity and get as close as possible to the line, I mean, you can use whatever New Testament verse you want in that situation. You know, all things are, are permissible for me. Second half of that verse, but not all things beneficial. You might implore, invoke your freedom as a Christian to say that, you know, I'm not under the law, it's not about legalism anymore. Or you might go to, you know, Romans, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you might use that, or you might say, you know, God's given me not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of self-control. So I can get here and that's fine. You might come up with every excuse that you want to get as close to sin as possible, but the chances are if that's where you want to pitch your tent, then part of you wants to be in there and you're not letting that voice die. Whatever that looks like, it might be in a relationship getting as close as possible to sexual sin without actually crossing that line, then you will be all right. Or it might be approaching the the boundaries of financial misconduct and saying, you know, no one's going to find out about this or it's only a little thing, it's only a small amount of money. Or it might be dabbling in addictive behavior, behaviors, thinking, you know, I've got control of this, so I've, I've, I'm on top of this. Chances are, if you're pitching your tent near sin, then it's not going to be too long before you're in sin. And what happens is that with that comes captivity. With that comes the enemy who's going to get a foothold, and there's going to be, you know, taking away the, the victory that should be yours as a Christian. Now, uh, hear, hear, my vo- hear my voice here, hear my intent, right? because uh, this is not to, in order to condemn. The Bible does say, in fact, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and, and we believe our interpretation of, of that means that the real you is the one that's guided by the Spirit. Right? So it's not that each, you know, deep down each of us is you know, at any moment ready to destroy our lives, and we're deep down we're a sinner. We're actually righteous, because Christ has made us righteous. And it's about learning to live out of that rather than giving in to temptation. Make of that what you will. And so we get to kind of the, the main part of the, the chapter 14, which we want to look at tonight. So Abram has to go and he gets together some of his allies and he takes 318 men of his own. And then with that group, he manages to defeat five kings. He defeats five kings in battle and then uh, recaptures Lot, frees him, all of his possessions. He's saved him. It's all good. And then we get to verse 17 of chapter 14. It says, After his return from the defeat of Ketelioma and the kings who were with him, 
The king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then we have sort of this random interjection in verse 18, which kind of comes out of nowhere and then disappears after about three verses. So the king of Sodom has come out to meet Abram in the king's valley. Then it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And that's kind of the end of that little episode. Then we go back to the king of Sodom. And it says, and the, and the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. So he's talking about the spoils of war there. He's not only freed everyone from Ketalaim, he's not only restored the possessions and the people of, of Sodom uh, and the other people that were taken up, but he's also taken plunder from that victory. And so uh, the king of Sodom says, you know, take everything for yourself. Take all of the plunder. I just want the people. Give me the people. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. They were the allies that Abram partnered with in order to go and win this victory. So, Abram is in this valley of kings, and two kings come out to him. And he is essentially given a different offer by each of those kings. And we have to sort of look below the surface here, because the king of Sodom comes with a lot of baggage. When we know we're talking about Sodom, we know we're talking about you know, sin, the sinful pleasures of the world, the desires of the world. And so you have to see that the king of Sodom represents all of those things. It's not just like a random guy. And then on the other side, we have this guy called Melchizedek. And let me tell you that these three verses are the only time that we hear about Melchizedek in any story. In any narrative, he's, he's not found anywhere else in the Bible in terms of a narrative text. Okay, we hear about him once in Psalm 110, and then we hear about him a lot in the book of Hebrews, where the writer to the Hebrews sort of interprets who Melchizedek is based on the psalm and based on this passage in Genesis. But other than that, he's a total enigma. But he's important, and we know that he's important for a few reasons. Firstly, and, and this is an argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes, and to be honest, when I was first preparing this message, we were basically just going to go all night on Melchizedek. And then I looked up anyone who had ever tried to give a message on Melchizedek, and the shortest one was about an hour long. So we didn't go down that route, but you could. There are a good, you know, from chapter 7 through to chapter 13 of Hebrews, explores these ideas a lot. But we know that he's important because... The, book, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes the argument that the superior is the one who blesses the inferior in this scenario. And so Melchizedek is blessing Abram, which means that Melchizedek is superior to Abram. Likewise, the inferior makes an offering to the superior. Abram made an offer to Melchizedek, therefore Melchizedek is more important. And Abram's like the big guy in Judaism. 
It doesn't get much, much bigger, much more important than Abram. And so suddenly there's this random guy that's somehow more important. And let me tell you that the Jewish scholarship talks about Melchizedek actually a lot, but they don't know what to do with him. They come to lots of different conclusions about who he is, but generally speaking, they just can't quite figure it out. And it has to do with a few unique things about this guy called Melchizedek. Firstly, the Jews know that he's got to be important because of the reasons that I've just said. Secondly, he's called a king. He is king of Salem. More than that, his name, Melchizedek, and the writer to the Hebrews explains this for us, his name, Melchizedek, translated means king of righteousness. And the place, Salem, is the same word in Hebrew as shalom, which we know means peace. So not only is he king of righteousness, he's also king of peace. Further, the town Salem, we know, was eventually captured by a people called the Jebusites, and it became known as Jebu-Salem, Salem of the Jebusites, and then through pronunciation and the way that language develops, Jebu-Salem became Jerusalem. So this guy, Melchizedek, is king of righteousness. He's king of peace. He's also king of the very place where Abraham would have his experience with sacrificing Isaac where the people of Israel would build the temple and be kind of the central place of worshipping God, where the altar and, and the Holy of Holies and everything important to Jewish cultic practice would be. Even more than that, it would be the same place that Jesus himself would die. Jesus, who had a perfect righteous life and who laid down his righteousness in order to purchase our peace. And so this guy, Melchizedek, is very unusual. And what the Jews can't, can't figure out is that he is not only called king, but he's also called priest. It tells us, uh, if uh, I think we go back a, a couple of slides maybe to, what verses are they? Uh, 18 through to, yeah, just verse 18. There we go. Because it says he's not only the king of Salem, but he's also the priest of God Most High. And in Jewish thought, there are these three sort of incredibly important offices, right? Positions, titles, prophet, priest, king. And a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. They represent God to the people. A priest is somebody who does the reverse. They represent the people to God. They offer sacrifices on behalf of the people in order for them to come into the presence and the favor of God. And then a king obviously rules over the whole thing. And so in the Jewish mindset, those are three separate things, three separate offices. And they had a king, and their sort of archetypal king was David. And so there was this promise that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would, be, who would sit on the throne of David, who would be a king. But there was also promise that there would be a prophet raised up the like, after the likeness of Moses who would speak to the people from God. But then there's also the interpretation that there's got to be a priest who kind of fulfills the ultimate priestly role. And never in all of Jewish history was there somebody who was both king and priest. So they can't separate those two things. Now, it gets weirder, okay, because let's just think about the timeline here. Abraham has his sons, you know, Isaac, Jacob, 
Isaac has uh, his, sorry, Isaac and, what's his brother's name? Esau. Thank you. Isaac has his son, Jacob, right? And then Jacob has the, the, his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. The people of Israel uh, you know, get welcomed into Egypt by Jacob, who's the vice regent there through the you know, whole slavery thing. And then they get taken in, and then they grow, and then they get enslaved. And then Moses is born, and then Moses has to run away because he killed an Egyptian. And then Moses comes back and says, you know, let my people go, Pharaoh. And then he takes them out through the Red Sea into the land of, uh, into the desert. And at Sinai, at Mount Sinai, he meets with God, and God establishes his covenant with the people of Israel. And part of that covenant, which begins in Exodus 19, is that he establishes an order of priests. And Aaron is the first of those priests. And God designates that the tribe of Levi, so one-twelfth of the people of Israel, are to function as priests. They are the people who are to represent the, the people of Israel to God. And God specifies very particularly how that needs to be done. All right, how many generations are there between Abram and the Levites, the priesthood of God? Lots, I don't know. It's a long time. And yet this guy is called the priest of the Most High God. There was no priesthood at this point. It didn't exist. God had not made the priesthood yet. So what is this guy doing? Where does he come from? Even more so, at this point in in Genesis, in the story of Genesis, for all we know, Abraham is the only person in the whole world who knows and worships God. I'm not sure if that's ever clicked for you. But we had the, the story where you know, people just know God because they're pretty close to you know, the lineage of, of uh, Adam and, and Eve. They just know that, that God is there. And then you get to, to Noah and you have the flood and then everything's destroyed and then every, everyone is sort of descended from Noah. And then the next big episode in the Bible is the Tower of Babel where, where people are so you know, self-driven uh, and, and so obsessed with, with self and there's, there's wickedness everywhere and God sort of disperses them all. That's in Genesis chapter 11. And then we have Genesis chapter 12, which is the call of Abram. And it says that Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is ancient Babylon, which means that he was worshipping the moon like the people around him. Nobody on the earth probably knew the name of Yahweh anymore. It had disappeared. And yet God calls Abram out of that situation and says, I'm going to bless you. He gives him the covenant promise, gives him the covenant of circumcision. And so for all we know at this point, Abram is the only one, and the, the narrative confirms it, okay? Abraham never comes into contact with anyone else who worships God. It's just him. And the people of Israel trace their lineage back to Abraham and stops there, right? Because he was the first one to sort of express faith in God. And so what is this guy, Melchizedek? Not only does he worship the God that Abraham knows, but he's considered a priest of the Most High God. It's fascinating. It's interesting. So who is this guy? Who is a priest before Aaron? Who is a king of peace and a king over the place of Jerusalem? He is also king of righteousness. And we could explore all of the different interpretations, but there are some things that are very clear. This guy Melchizedek essentially represents God. Now, I think that uh, he's certainly the writer of the Hebrews articulates that this guy Melchizedek is sort of a type of Christ. At the very least, he represents Christ. And you can consider all those titles, king of righteousness, king of peace, high priest of God. And I mean, it's, it's impossible to not 
put Jesus uh, into that as, as people who are New Testament-minded and can see the, the fulfillment there. We're told in uh, Psalm 110, uh, where this name Melchizedek pops up again, it says that, uh, you know, for the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, he has made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the order of Melchizedek is, is a different priesthood to the order of Levi. I hope I'm not losing you here. <laughs> right, priests, are, it's a bit of a funny thing, right? When I was um, finishing up teaching last year and, and some of my students, I, went, I was teaching in a Catholic boys' school, found out that uh, I was leaving to go and work for the church. Uh, the only picture that they had in, in their minds was of me becoming a priest. Um, and of sort of, yeah, walking around... It, it, the, the priest that we had at, at that school, a, a tremendous amount of respect for him, but he was just so priestly. I couldn't believe it. Like, he just walked around with this, like, holy gait. As, I don't even know how to do it. He had this incredibly, like, deep and resonant voice as, as he would, you know, say all the things. Anyway, it's pretty clear that that's not the case. That's, that's not what's, what's happening here. We're talking about priests. Is, is that okay? This is not, like, weeding people out or anything. We don't have priests in our church because we believe that the job of representing us to God has been fulfilled. That we were enslaved to sin, that we were dead in sin, but the price of our peace has been paid. No one needs to mediate for us anymore to God. The New Testament says that we have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. More than that, the New Testament actually says that we are a priesthood of all believers. Everybody here is a priest. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of that for more than like, oh, that's cool. What does it look like for, you know, Theo the priest, right, or or Hannah the priest, Kate the priest? Have you all got to go and get little collars and robes and sort of walk around and, no, no. No, we don't have to do that. And the reason for that is that there is a difference, a big difference, between the order of Melchizedek and the order of Levi. Because the order of Levi was set up in a temple scenario and their main job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. That is how God arranged our relationship with him. He's like, I'm a holy God. And for, in order for you to come to me at all, there has to be payment, there has to be sacrifice for this broken relationship. And so the priests had to offer animals, birds, whatever, in order to allow the people into the presence of God. That's what's called redemptive sacrifice. The, the sacrifice of the, the Levitical priesthood were redemptive sacrifices meant to bring us into relationship with God. And we know through the argument of the New Testament and and through some of the uh, verses in in Isaiah in particular that actually, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't do anything, doesn't do anything. Guess what, guys? It's a metaphor. (laughs) The blood of those animals is not actually effectively redemptive. There had to be an effective redemptive sacrifice. And in order for us to have peace With God, a price had to be paid. And this is a reality that I don't know if you've realized it yet, but it's it's we see it in our world as well. In a couple of days we'll be, you know, celebrating the holiest day of Australian the Australian calendar, Anzac Day. If I can use that terminology. 
And part of what we remember or celebrate in, in Anzac Day is that the, the peace we experience as a nation is not free. Peace is not free. The peace that we experience was bought at the price of the soldiers who died in those world wars which established you know, the world that we live in. That's a reality. Peace is not free. Okay, and one of the other things that you learn about peace, in the Australian curriculum, I used to teach a subject called religion and ethics, and we had a whole unit on peace and conflict. And the first thing that you learn in that unit is that peace is not simply the absence of war. Peace is not like a default position where, like, oh, nobody's punching me right now, so I'm at peace. The UN defines peace as a positive environment where, where people have dignity and where people have opportunity and where people are valued and there, there is you know, places for them to, to go. It's more than just the absence of war. And peace has a price. And we know the peace we experience as Australians was paid by the price of those soldiers that we're going to remember on Tuesday. But the same reality is true, is that your peace with God required a price. And it's either going to come from you or it's going to come from Jesus. And Abram here is presented with two very different offers from two very different kings. One of whom is the king of Sodom, the king of sin, the king of everything that the world has to offer. And I'm telling you that his offer looks pretty good. Take everything, Abram. All of the spoils, all of the gold, all of the money all of the jewelry, all of the statues, all of the horses, all of the livestock, all of the chariots, everything, Abram. Be rich beyond your wildest dreams. That is the offer of the king of Sodom. And on the other hand, he has the offer of the king of peace. And what does the king of peace offer? The king of Salem brought out bread and wine. This three verses just resonates with Jesus. Because we know bread and wine to be the elements that Jesus used to talk about his sacrifice on the cross. And he is the king of peace because he paid the price for peace. He is the king of righteousness because he is righteous. And he laid down that righteousness as his body was broken on the cross and as his blood was shed on the cross. And in that moment, he paid the price for our peace. And now he is the king of peace because he rules over peace. His kingdom is one of peace. And so Abram is offered these two things. Take, be enriched by the world. Take everything that the world can possibly offer. Or accept the sacrifice of the bread and the wine. And I'm telling you that that potato and gold nugget situation is represented right there. Are you going to take the bread and the wine? Are you going to accept the offer of peace? Are you going to accept that Jesus' broken body on the cross and his shed blood on the cross was the price required for your peace? Or are you going to take the world? You know, there are some people that think that you can do both. But unfortunately, this story is telling us that you can't. You see, the thing is, you don't have to pay for the peace, but you do have to reject the world. You can't do both. You cannot be enriched by the king of Sodom and also exist under the, the rulership of the king of peace. 
And there are the same two offers before us this evening. And if you haven't come to terms with those, those two offers in your life yet, then let me tell you that this is how it is. You can choose to live your life for the king of Sodom, for this world, in order to be rich, in order to gain all of the possible blessing and success and wealth that this world has to offer. And you know what's going to happen is you are going to be taken captive by the first thing to come along. Eventually, Sodom and Gomorrah get totally destroyed, utterly destroyed. God rains sulfur and fire on them. And you can choose that blessing and riches and wealth from the world, and that's going to be the result. Or you can choose to accept the king of peace offer, the bread and the wine, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And you can say, I accept that because that is the price that was paid for my peace. I don't have to pay it anymore. And in a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to make that uh, response. But there are a couple of things that we have to just cover for this as well. Because Abraham not only accepts the bread and the wine, but he also makes an offering to God. And uh, Noah, you can come on up. We're almost done. You see, the Levitical priesthood was about redemptive sacrifice. Everything that they did was in order to reconcile, to pay the price for peace, but it didn't work. It couldn't work because bulls and goats can't actually atone for man's sin. It had to be a man who paid that price. So Jesus came along and through his perfect sacrifice, his offer of his own righteous life, he was able to not just participate in the Levitical priesthood, but totally fulfill it completely fulfill it to the point where there is no need for any Levitical priesthood anymore. There is no need for redemptive sacrifice, only the priesthood of Melchizedek. And you know, as a kingdom of priests, you and I, we don't have to go and buy a robe or wear a collar or learn how to speak in a deep resonant voice. But the Bible does tell us that we are to make sacrifices, that we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our holy and acceptable worship. Romans 12. We've learned in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the sacrifices that are pleasing to God are a sacrifice of praise. And to not neglect doing good to others for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. We as priests are to offer sacrifices of ourselves. But hear this, they are not redemptive sacrifices. Okay, what you offer to God does nothing for your salvation. You cannot add to, earn, work for, do anything that makes you more saved than you already are. And some of us struggle so much with this. We think that we have to keep doing and keep earning and keep being such amazing people for God. There's no need for redemptive sacrifice because the only one true perfect redemptive sacrifice is what Jesus did upon the cross. So some of us need to stop striving here and to stop thinking that what we offer to God is going to somehow add to our redemption, is going to redeem us. Because we are priests under Jesus, priests under the order of Melchizedek, which is a priesthood that continues forever because he's alive forever. And by the way, you and I will be too. That priesthood is not one where the sacrifices are redemptive, but where they are sacrifices of glory. 
Every single sacrifice you lay down on the altar for God is one that brings glory to Him. And that's it. It doesn't make you, it doesn't save you. And you know what? That means the pressure's off. <laughs> but it also means that, you know, th- think about the order of what happened here for, for Abram. Because he was saved first. He was delivered through the battle. Then he was offered peace. And then he made his sacrifice. And then he gave his tenth. His peace was already paid for. And so the offering comes as a free will offering. It's about living from God, not living for God. Does that make a difference for you? Makes a big difference. A big difference for me. So can I summarize and say that the price of your peace has been paid? You do have to reject the world. And your life as a priest, as a kingdom of priests, as people who you know, come before God is one where we offer sacrifices that are designed purely to bring glory to God. And what we're about to do in a moment in singing praise is in order to bring glory to God. And that's our privilege. That's our privilege as people who have come to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? I'll just invite you to close your eyes. And I did make a promise before that if there's anyone here who has not accepted that offer of peace, that there are two choices before every single one of us. There is the offering of the king of Sodom, the king of sin, this world which says that you can be rich, you can have everything that you could possibly desire, all of the success, all of the wealth that you want. But let me tell you that that path leads to destruction. Or you can choose to accept the peace offering of the king of peace, which means that you come under his rulership and his authority. And the way that you choose the king of peace is by accepting the bread and the wine, accepting that Jesus' death on the cross was for you, that that paid the price for your peace, and that now you live from God. And so if that's you, then would you just repeat after me, and maybe all of us can repeat this, uh, just so that we're not singling anyone out. But if this is your decision that you're making, then would you speak it out as well and know that God hears you and that he's working in your heart. Forget everything else around. Forget all of the other people. So would we all just say this together? Dear God, I thank you that you paid the price for my peace. Thank you that Jesus died in my place in order to bring me to you. God, I repent of my sin and I turn to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live a life that brings glory to you. 